Imagine with me a second that uh, you, you have a friend who doesn't know anything about football. Now, there's looks. The last time I said this, I had looks, and there was looks in this service too. Some of you had the look of, why would I have a friend who doesn't know anything about football? <laughs> and others of you are like, I don't know anything about football. Um, and listen, we can all be friends, all right? But pretend with me for a second that um, you've got a friend that doesn't know anything about football, and they say to you, hey, I want you to take me to a football game, and I want me to teach you about football. And so you agree, and you say, hey, I'll take you. And then after you agree, they've come to you, and they say, um, actually, I, I only want to know things about football um, American football that are similar to what everybody else in the world calls football, right? I want to know only the things uh, that, are, that are similar to soccer. And so you think for a second, you're like, well, how are the two similar? And you think and you go, oh, I know. It's kicking when you kick the ball. So when the kicker goes to kick, say it's an extra point or a field goal, they go to kick, and what happens if you touch the kicker? They fall over. Right? And they pretend they're hurt, and the other team is penalized. And this is where they line up. This is where they're similar. And so the whole time you're teaching them about the game of, uh, taking the football game, you're teaching them about the game. During the game, they're on their phone, they're talking to you, they're being the super annoying person in the crowd that doesn't know what's going on in the game, except for when it's time to kick. So at kickoff, uh, when we score a touchdown, it's an extra point, and then a three-point field goal attempt. And so they only learn about kicking. And then they walk away for the day and they go, I understand football. Now, do they understand football? They understand a small portion of football, don't they? But they've taken particular interest in one thing. Now, many people approach the Bible just like that person. They find interest in one thing in the Bible and they go and they want to look at that one thing. But they don't look at the one thing within the rest of the context of it. And when we read scripture, we can't do that. Just like you can't understand the game of football for only looking at, at the parts that someone is kicking. Right? You're missing out on a ton of stuff. Some people come to the Bible that way. And in America, um, I think this is, this is particularly true of us. We often come to the Bible with only certain interest. And so people will come to the Bible only wanting the words of Jesus, the red letters in the Bible for the, the Bibles that used to, used to be written and only would have the words of Jesus. Other people come, and they come looking for certain things. And often we talk about the, the American gospel being this gospel, that uh, this, this story of good news, but the good news is that if you follow Jesus, he will make you healthy, uh, wealthy and good-looking. Is that how it goes? No, it's not it. Uh, health, wealth, and prosperous. That's it, prosperous. Uh, some of you are just hoping it would be good-looking. Um, and they, they go to the Scripture, and they like dive into Scripture, and they say, hey, th this, these are the parts that I'm interested in. And today, our text is actually one of those. Um, as we dive into our text today, we're going we're gonna to hear two different stories in our text. Uh, the first one is about someone being healed. And the second one is about somebody being raised from the dead. Now, uh, incredible stories. I believe them. Uh, like all of the Bible, I believe them to be true. But I don't believe that we can focus in on these stories 
and not look at the greater context of the Bible. And if you'll remember, those who've, who've, who've been coming for a while now, um, earlier in the year, preaching through the book of Luke, uh, we, we saw why does Jesus come? And here's some of the big ideas or the big truths from earlier in the year is that Jesus came to fight a spiritual battle. The battle that Jesus came to fight wasn't merely physical, though there's, there's a physical element to it. He was God in the flesh, and he did physical things, and he really healed people. He really did these things. There was physical, but it was more than physical. It was spiritual. A lot of the people who saw Jesus coming and heard that he was going to be king they wanted, in their minds, they're thinking physical battle. They're thinking, we want him to overthrow the Roman government. Down with Caesar, up with Jesus. Right? They wanted this, this physical battle. But he really didn't. It wasn't, we see, like when he goes into the desert with Satan, the, the, in, in, in the end of chapter 3, we see it's, it's a spiritual battle that he's coming to fight. And then in 4, when it's announced, like when he's, when he's quoting Isaiah and he's saying, you know, I'm coming to, to heal the blind, to, to, to set the captive free, to, to heal the oppressed. D- did he do those things physically? He absolutely did. But the, the physical wasn't enough. We're going to see, like in this story today, he heals this centurion servant. But that healing is tempor- temporary. He, it's, it, the guy's going to get sick again. The guy's going to eventually die. And then he's got an eternity to deal with. Same is true. He's going to raise somebody from the dead. But in raising them from the dead, he only delays their death. They're still going to die. So it's only the first part of the battle. So Jesus came to do more than a physical battle. It was a spiritual battle. And he didn't just come to heal us from our physical condition... He came to save us from our spiritual condition. And so today as we read this, we're reading it through the redemptive lens of Scripture. Um, we, We have the privilege that we know the rest of the story. We know what happens in the rest of the book of Luke. We know what happens before, not just in the book of Luke, but but in the Old Testament, thousands of years of God's redemptive history up to this point. And we know what's going to happen at the resurrection of Jesus and the birth of his church. And we also know what's going to happen because we have the book of Revelation. We know what's going to happen in the future as God comes back to bring both our spiritual and physical healing forever. And so as we dive into to Luke chapter 7 this morning, I want us to know this big truth when we walk away today. Is that Jesus came to save those who know they can't save themselves. Jesus came to save those who know they can't save themselves. Luke Chapter 19, verse 10, Luke is telling us why Jesus came. It says this, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is why Jesus came. He came to seek and save the lost. And so I'm using some nuance in this big truth when I say He came to save those who can't save themselves. Those who can't save themselves, God is intervening. Those who are the ones who He's seeking. He's seeking you out. So when you come to the place of realizing 
that, that you can't save yourself, it's because that God has loved you first. Now you're, you're developing a love for him. That God is intervening in your life. That he's using all the different things in your life to bring you to himself. And it is a beautiful thing that the Lord is coming into your life. So, starting in chapter 7, verse 1, it says this. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now we're going to pause here uh, before we, we take apart the second story. We're going to dive into the first story. And so when we kind of back up as we begin to take this apart, and we look at verse 1, it says, he finished... All his sayings in the hearing of the people. This is referring to what we just read in the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus, I'm sorry, the Sermon on the Plain. Uh, not the, on the Mount. This is a, a different sermon, but he said a lot of the same things. And so in the Sermon on the Plain, he's preached these Beatitudes. He said, you know, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. He's, he's gone through the, the, these blessed those who mourn. And, and he's, he's gone through, we see this. We see that you're to love those who hate you. We see his kingdom ethic in this kind of upside-down kingdom that's different than the ways of the world. And we see what it means to, 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 to know and to live a life of discernment and judgment and not casting judgment on others in a judgmental, harsh way, but to, to look at others through a lens of compassion and love and kindness, knowing that we all need the mercy of the Father. And we see that we judge, um, we're judged by the fruits, that a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree, uh, bad fruit. And we, we see that the way that we're to live our lives is on a foundation that is Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, built on the rock that is Jesus, not on the sands of the world that are going to blow away when the world comes. And so he's preached this sermon, and now he's headed into uh, a region that's, that's close by, Capernaum, and uh, with the timeline here, this isn't necessarily like an immediate thing, but we, most scholars believe that this, this happened soon after he would have preached that sermon. And he gets there, there's a centurion, and a centurion is a, a Roman government official. And we can know some things about this, this official. One, we know he's wealthy, he's wealthy enough to have servants. We know cent- centurions um, led uh, an army of at least 100 people. 
And so, uh, I mean, if we know century, right, 100, uh, we know that that's the base. But um, history tells us that could have been much higher. It could have been 500 people even. It could have been a big army. So he was a man with authority. And a man who was, uh, had a authority in a very, very um, powerful regime, a very powerful government, right? So this is what we know about him. We know from later on in the text that, that he, was, um, he had great favor with the, the local leaders. This is what we, we know. But we also know that his servant was sick. And he knew he needed Jesus. So here's my first big idea. Is that we want the people we love to meet Jesus. We want the people we love to meet Jesus. Now, it says that the centurion had a servant. By the way, because we know he was a centurion, we know he was a, a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He was a, a, a Gentile uh, leader. We know he has a, 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 a servant very much could have been like what we would even think of an indentured servant or a slave. And it says that it was very valuable to him. And so at first reading, we might think, okay, what kind of self-centered guy is this? Like, he wants his servant to be healthy so that he can continue to serve him? Um, he's like looking like, hey, this is a good one. This, one, this one's like got a real, real high gross yield ratio. This, is, this guy's a good servant. No, that's not what's going on here. Um, every scholar I read, as, as, as I studied this week, um, they, they take apart the Greek, they look at it. This is like a true like value. He valued his, his, this servant much like I value my family. You know, my, my boys and my wife, only my wife here this service, but last service, both sitting there, I'm like, there's nothing in the world other than Jesus that I value more than what's sitting on that front row. And if one of them was sick, I would do whatever I could to get them to a physician. Why? Because I love them. And this is the type of love that the, this centurion had uh, for that servant. So he does, um, in desperation, whatever he can to say, hey, let's get Jesus, this, this Jesus, to, to come to come, to come in, and I've heard, I've heard. There's rumors that this, that Jesus has the ability to heal, the power to heal. Let's get him to my God so that he can be healed. That's what true love is. Now, listen. Some of you may be in this room today, and somebody loves you, has twisted your arm, and got you to come to church. They have, they have begged you to come to church. They have, have dragged you to church. Maybe you're a teenager in the room and you're like, hey, I don't want to go to church. And your parents are like, well, you, you're going to go, period. You live under my roof. That's our authority. You're going. Why? Because they love you. They love you. That's why. And even if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't buy into Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus. Maybe just acknowledge that that person who brought you here does. And the reason that they're coming isn't because they're like, that dude needs Jesus. That's because they're like, hey, but they need Jesus. They, they, they love you. They care about you. The same way the centurion wanted, wanted somebody, he wanted this servant to be healed, wanted Jesus to come, to come 
save them, to heal them. We sang a song, the, the last song that, that we sang. It is a, it's a hard song for me to sing. There's some pain in singing that song. I remember the first time I heard that song. It was October 17, 2021. I don't know, at about 9, 10 a.m. It was right up there. Josh was to introduce it to our church. I had never heard it before. Um, my brother had just had some congestive heart failure and was just told that he needed a new heart. That afternoon, I was going to get on a plane and going to fly to Georgia and go see my brother Monday the, the 18th. And so that line in that song, my heart needs a surgeon, my soul needs a friend, it, it hit me. And it was like piercing me in my heart. I mean, it, I, heard the, I heard the line and it literally, I buckled over. I mean, this is, this is my best friend, one of my best friends in the world, my, my brother who was a 12 years older than me and a hero to me in a lot of ways when I was younger. You know, I, I feel the weight of this. My brother um, is not following Christ. And so I'm headed to, to see them. I'm flying to see them. Do, do you think that the, my main prayer is, Lord, heal them? It's not. My main prayer is, Lord, save them. Lord, save them. And so, Monday the 18th, I, I, I walk in to the hospital. And I walk into his room and I kneel down beside his bed and I hold his hand. And he knows what's coming. He knows it's coming. And I shared the gospel with him yet again. And that day he said, Zach, I'm trusting Christ. I'm trusting Christ. Why did I go all that way? Because I love him. Let me just encourage you. There are people in the room who you have people who you love who do not know Christ. Don't give up. Don't stop praying. A couple weeks ago, I got an email from a lady that just said, hey, I'd like some more information about your church and whatever else. And a miracle happened. I looked at my email. And I called her. I was like, all right, I don't have to reply to it. I can just call her. This is amazing. And so I called her. And as soon as I hear um, she's not from here. She's from Alabama, and she's in Alabama. I can tell. <laughs> Cousins. And, and on the phone, she says, listen, I have a son, and I love him. He's, I love him. And raised him in church, but, man, at some point, he, he, moved, he moved out to Colorado. He's not been in church in 15 years. And we've prayed for him, and we've prayed for him. And last week, he called me and said, hey, I, I want to find a church. Uh, what do you know about this certain type of church? And she looked it up, and she was like, oh, we can't go there. And so um, she, she starts looking for churches. She finds ours. She listens. She calls. We talk. She puts me on speakerphone with her and her husband. And on the phone, we plead for his soul. He was in the first service today. 
And afterwards, he came up and said, thank you so much. And we talked about his mom because she knew that we had talked. She texted me and told me at the beginning of the service he was coming. Why? Because she wants her son and her grandson. She brought, it was a big day. He, he took his, his little son, his four-year-old, to let him pick out an outfit to come to church for the first time. It was a big day to introduce his son to Jesus. There are, there are parents in, in somewhere Alabama rejoicing with the Lord this morning that God has answered their long-prayed prayers. And so for those in the, in the room who have, have that loved one, that person who you love, who you want to meet Jesus, don't give up. When we love people, we want to introduce them to Jesus. Verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. Now, you can see, this is, this is very interesting, that this centurion, this Roman official, has such favor with the Jewish elders. And maybe it's because he built their synagogue. There, there's, it's said that often government officials had like given to different things to try to appease people, so they would like give to the synagogue building fund, but it doesn't say that. Does it seem that way? It seems like this guy has a genuine belief of the God of Israel. This has a, 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 a genuine interest in the things of the Lord. And so he's found this favor with them. Not only did he just contribute to it, it says he built their synagogue. A synagogue was like a, a, a Jewish outpost. Um, it, it wasn't a temple. It wasn't like the temple, but it was an outpost where they would gather. We've, we've even talked about this in recent weeks, and they found favor with the, the elders. But I want you to understand something. Here's the next big idea. Is that we don't find favor with God because we are worthy. This is where these Jewish elders had it all wrong. Their whole lives were wrapped up trying to fulfill the law. To be a goody-goody two-shoes. Right? To, to, to dot every I and to cross every T and to do every little thing. This is what their, their life was caught up doing. They were just trying to be good enough to earn favor with God. And so here's their thought process. Hey, Jesus, Rabbi, this guy is worthy. You should come do this thing for him. They get it wrong. Let us not get it wrong. Let us not look, like we learned about last week, we talked about judgment. Not, let us not look at others in, in this condemning type of judgment. It's not wrong to look and go, what's right and wrong? What's good and what's healthy and what's not and what's bad and what should we do? It's, it's, it's great to discern those things. It's wrong to look with this condemning, damning judgment. But rather we realize that none of us are worthy. And that's in fact the good news of the gospel. Now, the, 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 these Jewish elders could learn something from this centurion because actually he understands. Listen to this. And Jesus went with him. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. Here's my next big idea. Is that understanding that we aren't worthy is the first step of salvation. 
Understanding that we aren't worthy is the first step of salvation. Listen, humility is the posture of those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a posture of humility. When I'm meeting with a young person, and a young person comes to me and says, hey, I want to be baptized. They talk about baptism. One of the things that I meet with them about, and I work with them with, is making sure they understand they're a sinner and that they need a Savior. Now, their parents are very aware of the fact that they're a sinner. Their siblings are aware of the fact that they're a sinner. But I need them to understand that they are a sinner and that they've, they've fallen short and that they don't know they, don't, they can't earn their own salvation. Now, I, I want to note just for a second, on the other end of life, there's some of us who we've lived life, and we've done things that we're ashamed of. We're done things that, we've done things that we don't, other, we don't even want other people to know. And we believe a different lie. It's not the same one that the Jewish elders believed. We believe a lie that says we are unworthy, we know we're unworthy, we live with it every second, right? We feel the weight of our sin and the shame, we bear it, and there's no way that God could love me enough to save me because I am a wretch. I want you to understand, there's two lies. One lie that says, oh, you're worthy because you're great, look how awesome you are. And another one that says you're unworthy and incapable of God saving you. Here's, here's an, an analogy that I would use. Um, imagine that we are up in the mountains somewhere backpacking. Good thought, right? Can't wait. Stop snowing. <laughs> All right, anyway, I won't go there. We, we can use, we, I know we need the snow. We need the snowpack. You're up, we're, we're up there, and it's time to, to get something to drink. And one day we look down at the stream, we first get there, and the water is crisp and beautiful. And we think, man, we're a mountain stream, we can just drink this water, no big deal. However, the, that night it comes a, a monster thunderstorm, the evening kind of tsunami storm. The, 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 it rains and the, the, the little stream fills up and all of a sudden it's dirty brown water. Are we still going to scoop it up and drink it? But do you know the reality? I mean, the answer was no to that, right? But do you know the reality? You take, that micro, you take that water and you put it under a microscope and you look. There's all sorts of stuff in that water, whether it's clear or whether it's brown, whether it looks clean on the outside or whether it looks dirty. When you put it under the microscope, you're going to find out that there's Giardia in it, right? You drink it, you're going to get sick. You're going to regret it. Both are dirty. Both need to be clean. Both need to be filtered. And so that's the reality that we see. That, that the first step in salvation is realizing that though we were sinners, Christ died for us. That none are righteous, not even one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's the truth of Scripture. We are on a level playing field. We all are sinners in need of a Savior. The centurion gets it. He's, he's, he's been bold in his faith to say, let's go get this Jesus and bring him in. And then all of a sudden he starts thinking about it. 
He's like, I don't know that I can bring Jesus here. One, like he understands understands that this rabbi, Jesus, enters his house. Like he's going to be unclean. He can't come into a Gentile house. And then he starts thinking, I'm just this Gentile. I'm unworthy. I can't can't do these things. I don't deserve these things. Wait, let's put the brakes on this thing. So he, he goes to Jesus. He leaves. He goes to him and says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I do not presume to, to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. He understood authority. He understood that Jesus was God's son, that Jesus was who he said he was, that Jesus had a, a, a heavenly father that was all-powerful, and that Jesus is there under his authority, and, and he understood what that was like. And so whatever he said, he realized was going to happen. And so he says, just, just, just do it. Just heal him. It says when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. The scriptures don't say that very often. I think only twice did Jesus marvel at somebody's faith. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. And so here's my next big idea. Is that salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where salvation comes. It is faith that saves. It is faith that he is Lord. It is faith that he has all authority. When you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you are making a statement that Jesus is king, he is ruler, he is boss, and I am not. You are are confessing. There's a confession there. You're saying, I am unworthy, and I'm recognizing that I am unworthy. I can't save myself, and I am submitting to the Savior. It It is Jesus who can save me. You going to answer that? Hello? There it goes. Man, the Lord's calling somebody. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, it, is, it is the Lord who saves. It is you are calling out that he is Lord. Salvation only comes by faith. It's not that God's going to come heal the centurion's servant because he's worthy. It's because that he believed. It's that it's faith. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not. It's grace you've been saved through doing. It's grace you've been saved through faith. This not of your own works. It's a gift of God. Not by works so that no one could boast, but rather, we talk about this all the time, that he created you in Christ Jesus for good works. It's what God works in your heart works out. And so, it's faith. For for God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever would believe in him 
would have faith in him, would not perish, but have everlasting life. It is, it is faith that he calls us to. Salvation comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain. Only time this is mentioned in Scripture. And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. This was, this was normal for the time. They wanted to see the physical things that he was doing, the miracles that he was doing. And as he drew near to the gate of town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother. And she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Here's the next big idea. It's this, that salvation is an act of compassion by Jesus. The centurion, he confessed that he was unworthy. The widow didn't have to. Everything in her life showed that she was desperate for Jesus. She didn't have to say she was unworthy and that she needed a Savior. Her tears confessed it. Her weeping confessed it. That she was broken, that she was hurting, that she needed help. She was now a childless widow. You, you can go through a lot of loss in life. She's a widow. She'd lost her husband. I think anybody that, that has been widowed and has lost a child would tell you that losing a child was harder than the spouse. Losing a child is one of the most unnatural things that we could ever do. It's one of the hardest consequences of a broken world. My mom has been both widowed twice. My mom was widowed. My father died in 2000. She married again in 2005, 2010. Five years after being married, that husband died. And she's lost a son. And she would tell you that losing a son is unnatural. I've buried parents. I've watched my mom bury her parents. I think there's a natural order to that. The younger the parent is, the harder it is. There's tragedy that comes with it. But losing a child? I think it's one of the most painful things that you can do. One of my best friends, his name's Dusty Rhodes. I'm not making that up. It's really his name. He's, he's, he's one of my best friends. And um, He's lost two sons, one in 2003, one in 2017. I got to preach the funeral of Justin in 2017. He had had a four-year battle with colon cancer. Dusty and Mary Rhodes are some of the most compassionate people that I know, most loving people I know, because of the great grief that they've experienced, right? There's more to it, though. She's not just now a widow. She's a, she's a widow without a kid. And in, first, in the first century, that didn't just mean she lost her son. It meant she lost her livelihood. 
it meant there was now no way for her to make a way. It wasn't like she could just go and work. She was dependent on the kid to be able to work, the son that would be able to take care of her. We see in Scripture uh, that all throughout Scripture that God is very concerned for the widow. We see provision made in the Old Testament for the widow. In the New Testament, what do we see? James said that religion is, is, that is pure and undefiled is to take care of the widow and the orphan in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Like, if you really love Jesus, you're going to take care of the widow. Like, you see that. Something else we see, Paul uh, to Timothy, is he's saying, like, how to take care of the widows. He's saying, let the widows who have children, let their children take care of them. And the ones who truly are like this lady, let the church take care of them. Because outside of those in the church, those, those women would have been essentially um, damned. They would have become gone from having to being a beggar in a moment. And so you look at the, the brokenness that she's seen. Look at the curse of her reality. And Jesus' act of compassion is one of the greatest we'll ever see. And the example for us is salvation, that we, we need to realize we are just like that widow, that we are broken with no way. But yet God makes a way. Listen to this. Then he came up and he touched the beer. And the bears stood still. And so uh, the beer would have been like um, an open casket. They would, have been, they would have been carrying her on. Think Paul Bear carrying a casket. The bears uh, carrying this beer and uh, the open body on it. And Jesus touches it. And you've got to realize he's telling us something here. There's no way the Jewish elders would have touched that. To touch something that, that has had death on it is unclean. And yet Jesus touches it. And he said to the young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Only five places in scripture do we see someone raised from the dead. Three are Jesus uh, Two are in, one is in 1 Kings, one is in 2 Kings. We see this language in 1 Kings, actually, uh, of the raising him up and giving, giving the child to his, his, his mother. And here's, the, here's what I would show you in this big idea, is that Jesus has authority over death. We're going to see it. We're going to see it at the resurrection of Christ. Because like this is the good news of the gospel, is that Jesus was dead. He took our sin, our punishment. They killed him. And while he was in the tomb, God spoke and raised his son from the dead. And on that, we can be saved on the authority that comes with it. But here, Jesus speaks over a dead person that is dead. And they raise up. And like, hey, where are we? What are we doing here? He had authority over death. We see that miracle and we go, that, we just know that doesn't happen. The dead don't come back to life. But yet Jesus could do it. Jesus had authority over death. Now, we have to realize that this is a miracle. This was incredible. But the Bible also teaches us that anytime somebody crosses over spiritually, from death to life. The Bible says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. 
It says we were, we were dead, we were, we were walking zombies, dead walking in the world. And it is just as much a miracle when Jesus speaks into somebody and says, hey, come live. Next week, we're going to have a baptism. And there'll be, a, there'll be a, a, a tub up here, a trough with it, with water. And it will be symbolic of a tomb. It's symbolic that the water in there is, is, is the burial, is the tomb. And when we go in that water, we, we are saying we are dead, dying to ourselves, and raised in a new life to Jesus. That Jesus is raising us spiritually from the dead. And Jesus has that authority. And so when Jesus is calling you, maybe today you're hearing Jesus say, Believe in me. He's saying, rise up and, and, and come. He's saying, believe. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised his son from the dead and you will be saved. Today, place your faith and trust in the one who has authority over all. Come alive today in Christ Jesus. And when they saw this happen, everybody else, they, they, they see it happen. This is what happened. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Here's my next big idea, is that we glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. That's actually the mission statement of our church. But that's what they did. When they see God do this great work, what do they do? They glorified him, and then what happens? They spread it all around. And this is what we're doing. You understand that Jesus has authority, all authority, authority even over death. We then who, who obey his authority. We call him Lord, and we obey. I want you to think about the great commission that we so often talk about in church. What does he say? All authority. In heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so for those in the room who confess Christ as Lord, be just like the people who witnessed this. Go glorify God by proclaiming Jesus Christ. Live as missionaries. Live as disciple makers that you have been called to. Tell others about Jesus. Tell the ones you love who Jesus is. Introduce them to Jesus. Your, your, your husband, your wife, your kids, your brother, your sister, your mom, your parents, your, your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends. Whoever it is, tell them about the good news of Jesus. Tell them about Jesus' glory. Most of you in the room today, that should be the application of this text. Go and bring God glory. There's maybe others in you in the room today that have a different application. There's some of you in the room who confess that Jesus is Lord. That you say that you've believed in the Lord Jesus. But Jesus says, come and be baptized. Come and proclaim to the world. It's the first step of proclamation 
is baptism. Baptism is a declaration of the world, a proclamation of the world that we have been buried with Jesus and we've been raised to life to walk with Christ. And so you need to be obedient in baptism. baptism. If Jesus is really Lord, if he's really boss, then you need to be baptized. Some of you, maybe, maybe you have in just recent days, maybe even today or recent weeks, have placed your faith and trust in Jesus. It's time. Make that step of obedience. Maybe there's others of you who, in, in good faith, your parents baptized you as a believer, but as, as a baby. But that's not what we see in Scripture. We see believer's baptism. That baptism happens after you believe. And so maybe you need to, to come and to be baptized. Maybe for some of you, your baptism is out of order. And as, as a child or at some point in life, you wanted to get out of hell free card. You wanted to work to make yourself worthy. And you baptized with the wrong motive and didn't understand it. But Jesus is clear, but this is, this is for his followers, those who follow him. And so after you follow him, you make a, de- a proclamation, declaration, I am following Christ. There's a, there's a card there in the seat back pocket in front of you. You can take and fill out that card, and you can mark baptism on it. Maybe you've got more questions, and you're not ready to be baptized, but you want to talk about salvation. You can tell us that. You can scan it. You can do it on your phone. Or you can just come up to me or Brandon after church, and you can say, hey, I want to talk to you about baptism. But it is a step of obedience. And maybe God is calling you to do it. We're going to do one next week. We would love to see you be obedient to Jesus in that. But then there's another way. It's communion. And we're going to take communion today. Listen to this passage as Paul explains communion. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now listen to this line. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In a few seconds, we're going to take communion. And this taking communion is a proclamation to the world that Jesus has authority over our lives. This is a symbolic expression of our faith. This doesn't save you. This doesn't earn you any favor or any merit with God. It is a symbolic expression. It is a gift to us. This little, this little piece of bread in here is a piece of unleavened bread. Leaven in the Bible is symbolic of sin. A little leaven leavens the whole, whole lump. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And so this bread is, is to show that, no, it's unleavened. It is sinless as Jesus was sinless. And just as we see in the scripture, as he says, remember, you remember that my body was given for you. So you're going you're gonna to come, and when you come, you'll take this, and you'll put it between your teeth, and you'll crush it. As his body was broken for you and I. And then I'll ask you to turn it over and peel peel back the top. And then together we'll drink it in remembrance of him. Proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We'll do that together. Now. Who should take this? This is what the Bible says. He says, this is what Paul continues. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. 
And so, one, if you're, you're here today and you, you don't believe all of this, you're just not there yet. You're like, I just came, I got drugged because somebody loves me, I'm thankful they love me, I'm thankful they drugged me, but I'm just not a Christian. Then it would really be kind of weird to eat Jesus' body and drink his blood symbolically, right? So, listen, no one's looking at you, no, one, no, one's, no one in here is keeping marks on who takes communion and who doesn't take communion. And so I want to invite you, if you don't believe in the gospel, not to take communion. Now, there's some other people in here that you are living in sin. And you are unwilling to repent of that sin. You're going to eat then in an unworthy manner and eat judgment on yourself. So, if you're unwilling to repent of sin, then I invite you not to drink and eat of the cup, the bread. The Bible says examine yourself before you eat and drink. I invite every one of you, everybody else, to sit here and examine yourself. To go, have I placed my faith in Lord in, in the Lord Jesus Christ? Have I been obedient in baptism? Uh, communion is for the ba- those baptized followers of Christ. Have I got sin in my life? And if so, examine yourself and repent of it. Turn from it and run to the one that loves you and is compassionate to you. Run to Jesus. We're going to sing a song of response. And in that song of response, I want you to do the examining in your heart to pray. And when you're ready, just come down the center aisle, uh, take your cup, and work back up the, the aisle back to your seat. Again, no one is watching. No one is, cares if you take communion or, or not. No, no one's keeping count. So in this song of response, I'm going to ask the band to come back up and to play. I want you to begin to, to examine yourself before the Lord. To repent. The purpose of this, it, it, this is to bring you to repentance, to turn from your sin, to turn from the things of the world, and run to Jesus. And then for some of you in the room who, who've never confessed that Jesus is Lord, in these moments, confess that he is Lord. Confess that you need Jesus and he will save you. Come to Christ today. So Father, we come to you. Humble. Confessing that we are unworthy. And worshiping you because you're good. That you are a God of compassion, a God of love, a God of mercy, and a God of grace. And that while we were still sinners, you died for us. Lord, move and work in us. Let us be a people who are set apart from the world. Let us be a people who live in the world but are not of the world. Let us be a people who live on mission for you to proclaim your glory until you come. Lord, move and work in our midst today. Seek and save the lost and be glorified in our worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you will, stand, sit, whatever you feel led to do as you examine yourself before the Lord.